This is an Aim High You production. Today on The Purpose Lab. The music gave me an environment where I can have a vehicle to connect to people. You know, we can have something that isn't related to drinking. We can have something that isn't related to smoking weed and getting high. We can get together and just drum, just sing songs and just dance and just have this in our lives. Welcome to the next edition of The Purpose Lab. I am so excited about our next guest. I truly, truly am. Um, I know I'm gonna get animated because I always do, Andrew. So I don't want you to think my low right now. I'm just trying to use that voice as I welcome the guest in. But um, thank you for once again agreeing to be on this podcast, which our podcast is called The Purpose Lab. And we're on a mission to interview the world's most successful failures, failures who um, understand the importance of using failure, learning from failure, Failure and ultimately going into success because failure and success leaves clues. I believe they're closely connected. So I'm excited. I'm going to go ahead and read your bio. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's like a novel right here, a novel. So I want, I'm going to just go brief on it. And then hopefully um, as we're going through this, go as deep as you want, go as deep as you want with this, because as I've read your bio um, a few times, this is pretty deep. And so I'm excited to hear um, how this conversation goes. So um, today's guest, we have Andrew Ecker, and he's the author of The Sacred Seven, Apache NDE, Irish and German American, born into inheritance of trauma. Both his parents were addicted to drugs and died very young. Mom, Kathy Lindsay, from a cocaine overdose. Father Dale Ecker from Hep C, calls from intervenous um, drug use. Growing up in the height of of Reagan and Clinton's war on drugs, policies led Andrew down a path of destruction that included cocaine and heroin abuse until he made a decision to change his life while serving 3.5 years in federal prison for drug charges. Andrew found healing in his life through the use of ancient technologies, including drumming and a ceremonial introduction process of his Native American ancestry. He outlines in his book, The Sacred Seven. So everyone, welcome to the Purpose Lab, Andrew Ecker, everyone. I'm excited. I'm excited. Right then, I think that's where the clapping would come. I think the clapping and the standing ovations would come right there. I'm Andrew, feeling it. I'm, I'm feeling you feeling it, it right now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I am. Your voice is actually very, you know, soothing to me. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and practice my uh, traditional introduction in my ancestral language and then also in the contemporary. Uh, this is a, a practice that really grounds me in. So, and it's yeah. also one of these. Uh, simplistic, I guess, peaceful tools of resistance, right? Love to it. say that I'm I'm still here, that I'm I'm keeping my ancestral language and uh we're alive. So Dogate Andrewekar Yinishe, Donna E Nishinigi E Inde Nishe, Irish Bashachin, Inde Dashache, German Dashadali, a Kote go e Tishli e Portland Oregon Inisha, Shema e Kathy Lindsay Woye, Shaza e Del Ecker Wole. So I am Andrew Ecker, my mother, Kathy Lindsay, my father, Dale Ecker, my mother's mother, Elva Gallegos, Apache woman from New Mexico, my father's mother, Evelyn Beatty, Irish woman from Pennsylvania, my mother's father, Leroy Lindsay, Apache man from Arkansas, and my father's father, Wayne Ecker, German Algonquin from Pennsylvania. I have a daughter, Bailey, a son, Peyton, beautiful, mm-hmm. beloved fiance, Monica. I was incarnated into this body in the land of the Multnomah. Mm. underneath beautiful Mount Hood next to the Willamette River in Portland, Oregon. Although I reside here in the land of the Akmal Atom in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm grateful to be here with you. And as you were sharing, uh, Dr. Damien, I was I was really resting into this space of realizing, you know, what is my, my greatest failure? You mm. know, what is that greatest failure? And I would, I would really say that my greatest failure is a failure of self-identity. You know, um, not knowing who I was for many years of my life, I was living under the confusion of the illusion, Mm. you know, of separation. And in that confusion of illusion, the contemporary culture taught me who I was. Yes. And, uh, you know, it was, there was so many influences in my life, uh, so many influences that brought me to that place of brokenness, Mm. uh, 
you know, like I was, you shared in my bio, uh, the Reagan era, the Clinton era, the war on drugs, you know, which many of our communities really have yet to fully unpack the trauma of that experience. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still learning to deal with it. In fact, I recently was listening to uh, PRX, and man, shout out to PRX. They have some amazing okay. content podcasts. They just came out yes. with this podcast called Suave. And man, I get emotional just even mentioning this, mm-hmm. because this is a podcast about a young man who was sentenced to life as a child, you mm-hmm. know, during the uh, the Clinton era. You know, and this was the the real, you know, just major discrimination that was going on in the way we viewed uh, the war on drugs and people who mm-hmm. were addicted mm-hmm. and suffering from mental illness. And we were labeling people and children as, you know, maximum predators. I mean, these mm-hmm. kids that were growing up in war zones. I mean, literally, you know, going to school, walking by dead bodies. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we have this uh, as a, a culture, this audacity to look at the experience experience of a person and separate it from the environment that a person is in. In other words, we mm-hmm. we say that, you know, oh, a person should live to a standard regardless of how they grew up, mm-hmm. you know, and we mm-hmm. put this into the container of justice and we called it mandatory minimums, yes, right? Yep. And we create, we create these sentencing guidelines that, you know, I mean, so many of our people, the fatherlessness, the, the mm-hmm. broken families, and this young man's plight of being incarcerated 40 years. Yeah. I mean, it was horrendous what happened. It was two kids killing each other, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a horrible thing to hear about. And, right, we've learned a lot now. We've learned, and I feel the more that we unpack the voice of that generation, you know, um, the more that we'll be able to hopefully come into this era that we're in, which is another horrible era of opiate addiction uh, that we can look at and we can see the the institutional hand, right? We know that this one's the pharmaceutical industry. You Mm -hmm. know, my era, the crack cocaine era, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the dark hand, the invisible hand of the CIA, you know, smuggling cocaine into into our neighborhoods mm-hmm. is not referenced as much. You yes. know, it's not referenced in yeah. it's not in the yeah. in kind of yeah. the zeitgeist. You know yeah. that that yeah. the uh, pharmaceutical industry is in right. Uh, but those of us that are in the know, yeah, we know what's up. We know where that you know where the trauma came from. So. Definitely. It's so funny that you say that. And I want to ask you a question because I want to go back to something you did earlier because I think it's important and I think it's pertinent to our conversation moving forward. But yeah, you're, you're right. And I, I grew up and and I was actually, um, uh, I wouldn't say friends, but I had friends who were friends of the real Rick Ross, not the rapper Rick Ross, but the Ooh. real Rick Ross and, 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 and that whole um, discovering the CIA and who was involved with different things. But that's a whole different story. But, but you're right. Um, so I want to go back to what you started off with. And I do it a lot when I go speak. Whenever I go speak, I always have pictures of my family. And I I tell my audience, no matter who it is, I I show pictures of my family because not only does that help me become grounded, but it helps me to um, really just 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 know that they're there with me. So when you started off and, and you said, this is what keeps me grounded. Why is that so important to you to start off your conversations, to start off what you do, acknowledging, acknowledging the thing and the people and the situations that have kept you grounded? So, as I've been taught this, right, um, this introduction, which came to me, I was invited to do a healing ceremony on the Navajo Nation at Fort Defiance, and this man brought me to his hogan, which is a ceremonial home, and as we sat there, elders from the community introduced themselves in the process that I just shared with you, and as they introduced themselves, there was a tangible shift in the room energetically. You know, everybody started to straighten up, each one of these elders going around. And it just, not only did they have a physical kind of uh, transformation that I could see, Mm. but also the whole room shifted, okay? Mm. And it was this acknowledgement of being a child, you know, Mm. being a grandchild, right? And being Mm. born from somewhere, being born of the earth. Mm. And you think about how our ancestors encountered encountered the colonial idea of self-identity and what that must have been like for them, you know, to, to be encountering people that would say, hi, my name is 
and I'm the kernel of, you know, and what, what would go on in their minds? You know, is this a human being that I'm talking to? Mm -hmm. Is this, is this an earthling that I'm talking to? This mm -hmm. person, it doesn't acknowledge their family. This person mm -hmm. doesn't acknowledge where they're from. What is this that's in front of me? Mm -hmm. And I, I have had that process come forward in my life, right? Mm -hmm. Who are mm -hmm. you really? You know, what, you know, what is this person that, you know, you define as Andrew Ecker? And when I, I rest into that space of being a child, you know, is it difficult to introduce my mom that, you know, used me to steal, to shoplift, mm -hmm. to support a cocaine habit? Is mm -hmm. it, you know, challenging to introduce my father that thought being a good dad was turning me on to a clean heroin connection, that it, you know, being a teenager, I would use heroin with my father? There, there's levels of resistance in that, right? Mm -hmm. And there's also the medicine. What is the value of me, you know, mm -hmm. that comes forward in that conversation? You know, my grandparents, how they impacted my life, the place that I was born, how that impacted my life, you know, and also currently where I'm residing. These are all foundations that have been woven into the fabric of our DNA since the dawn of cultural identity. Yet in our contemporary culture, it's, hi, my name is Andrew and I'm an author, I'm a public speaker, I'm a, you know, I'm a drummer, I'm a professional musician, you know, I've done, uh, you know, corporate team building for this and that and all these different things, you know. Mm -hmm. But really, this is like such a side note, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's such a side mm -hmm. note. And also, you know, where I'm at right now, it's like, you know, what a sacrifice my mom gave me, you know, wow. what a sacrifice my father gave me, you know, to grow up in the pain and the suffering of mental illness and addiction and mm -hmm. to give me this gift now, 22 years substance abuse free, to be able to look at a child that has generational trauma, that's grown up in, you know, colonial occupation and I've, you know, I've had the privilege of working with, uh, you know, s six different Native American tribes, four different Native American nonprofits. And I can tell you that my medicine, right, comes through in a very powerful way now, you know. And when we talk about medicine from kind of a traditional Native American standpoint, it's obviously not in a pill bottle, yeah. right? Uh -huh. It's yeah. not, you know, the medicine is your story. You know, as I yes. was listening to, you know, both of you and the just the, the culture that Justin and, you know, Dr. Damien, just the culture that you're creating with this podcast, you know, your medicine is in what you bring forward in authenticity mm -hmm. and vulnerability mm -hmm. and the intimacy that comes forward in this sacred space that we're creating right here. Definitely. You know, this Definitely. is this is how we do transform culture, you know, getting yeah. back to the root. So it's, it's such a beautiful reminder. And, you know, we, as you were sharing with me and you were saying, that's how I begin my conversations as a doctor, as an accomplished educator. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many ways that you can, you can approach that platform, you know, yeah. and I would also challenge you to the next time that you speak at a place, learn the name of the indigenous people. You know, mm. what's the name of the mm. tribe that you were mm. speaking at that university's land, right? We're in a conscious yes. era. Yes. And, you know, learning that, right, is is the next step in welcome to Phoenix, Arizona, you know, the sign. And then underneath yes. it, it says the land of the Akmal Atam. Welcome to Los Angeles, the land of the Tongva. You know, yes. Well, yes. this is how we really take ownership as a culture, as a people, and start to change and transform the world. So okay. uh, that was it. a little bit of a, Definitely. you know, little bit of a soapbox no. there, but no, 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 that's, that's right <laughs> on. And, and, and that's, that's what we want. And, and, and when, when, when guests, which we don't even call them guests and, and when family comes on, when different people who we're able to have these conversations with, it's always my hope that someone takes the information and is able to use it. Maybe all the information won't apply to that person, but there's nuggets and everything. So one of the things I want to ask you about was, and, and one of the things that I had to learn growing up in a single parent household, it was, it wasn't until I was able to forgive my father who wasn't in my life. How difficult was it for you to, cause now you're at a space where you understand it and you're able to give thanks. How difficult was it to have that transition from being angry? I can imagine, or maybe not to where it's, I want to recognize the, the the story that they've allowed me to have, my mom, my dad, my grandmother, in my life. So, you know, talk about anger. I literally killed my father. 
Mm. You know, I was the person when he was sick with hepatitis C, you know, and I was in my own substance abuse. My family looked to me and said, are you, you know, should we unplug him? Mm. And I was the person that said, yeah, you need to unplug him. Mm. You know, uh, he was hooked up on machines and he had spent his life trying to escape this world. So it wasn't um, much of a question in my mind uh, mm. to say, well, let's get let's let him get on to the next trip. Uh, yes. You know, there was a lot of anger around the way that I viewed my dad. Um, and there was also a lot of love, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, surprisingly, when I remember bringing him a bag of marijuana and him sitting me down and saying, son, you're going to prison, you mm-hmm. know, it was like, F you, dad, you know, yeah. like literally, yeah. like, what do you mean I'm going to prison? He's like, no, 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 you like the fast money and you like the lifestyle. And, you know, it was, it's really a culture. You know, when mm. you grow up the way that I grew up, it was it's and that for many people out there, right? It's like you have the contemporary culture and then you have these isolated kind of, you know, independent cultures that are mm-hmm. living in the varios and living in the neighborhoods and yep. you know, it's an opposition to the contemporary. It's like these people are against us. This mm-hmm. system is against us. And there's so many influences that come into that. And in my relationship with my parents, there was definitely this idea of we're bonded in this substance abuse, we're bonded in this generational incarceration, in this generational addiction, and it is somewhat of a us and them. And, right, you can't put down the pipe to be a dad, you can't put down the needle to be a mom, you know? Like, there's all of those kind of ideas inside of my mind. So when we talk about forgiveness... And by the way, when I first got out of prison, I was a pastor for three and a half years. So I'm going to go okay. into a, you know, a Holy Spirit little moment here, right? So <laughs> okay. Okay. when we talk about forgiveness, for me, it's like a supernatural experience, okay? Mm-hmm. It's like I make a choice to forgive. And when I make that choice to forgive, I can say that with my words, and there's power in that. You know, I'm mm-hmm. speaking that into existence. Mm-hmm. What really has transformed my life is when I stepped into empathy, Mm. You know, and man, I get emotional right now just even saying that. It's like the chills just run forward into my body because why? Why? Because it's it's like you said, it's the it's the representation of realizing that, you know, how many times was my mom raped in a drug house to give me this gift? You feel me? Wow. You know, how many times was my dad beat by the police and mm. ostracized and not allowed to, to go in places or be or get, you know, jobs because of his substance abuse? How many times was, you know, the struggle that he was in to give me the gift that he's given me? Mm. And, you know, that comes from the application of utilizing my story. That mm. comes from being vulnerable enough and intimate enough. And I know that it's a struggle, you know? People are listening to this and they're probably saying, well, how am I going to unravel my sexual trauma? How am I going to unravel, you know, my generational addiction? You know, Andrew, yes. you don't understand. I I can't open up about this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, for years of my life, right, the, you know, the the neighborhood I lived in was kind of a gang neighborhood, drug neighborhood. Yeah. So we had the missionaries coming in the neighborhood and mm-hmm. going in and trying to, you know, speak spirituality to us and that. Yeah. And they would pray with us, and everybody around me, I'd look, and they'd have their eyes closed. But you Mm. know something, uh, Dr. Damien, I was afraid to close my eyes, you know? People are praying, and they got their head down, and they're calling in the Holy Spirit and the name of Jesus and everything. And I got my eyes on them because there's no way I'm taking my eyes off of these people. I don't trust anybody. that's a trust thing, yep. I am at a high state of alert my entire, all the way into my adulthood. It Uh wasn't until I was in prison that I felt safe. Why is that? Home insecurity. Mm. Talk to me about that. You know, when when you grow up being bounced from family member to family member and foster care from foster care, you know, just the story of this contemporary culture, um, home insecurity is something that I have a relationship with today. You know, as a 45-year-old successful business person, author and speaker and all these things, I still come into that space where I feel the the remnant relationship to that process. Mm-hmm. And that's a process that I'm comfortable with having a relationship to. When I was given three and a half years in prison to sit me down and I only focused on my health, I only focused on my spirituality. When the guys were in there slapping dominoes and, you know, mm-hmm. talking and everything, I was in the library you know, mm-hmm. the first time I read a book was when I was in solitary confinement because mm-hmm. I felt safe. 
Yeah. You know, it was the first time that I ever could let go of that heightened state of awareness. And people would say, you know, what do you mean? You're around gangsters and killers and drug dealers and pimps and, you know, the worst of society. But yet this was, I knew what kind of people these were. Yeah. You know, I knew what to expect from people. You sit me in a group yeah. of, you know, quote unquote, Christian business owners. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, who are these people? You yeah. know, what are, yeah. who, what are they about? You know, yeah. I don't get you, you know, and, and that level of comfort that I had in the institution was actually very profound and transformational, uh, which goes back to what many of us are experiencing during the pandemic. There are yeah. literally, we are going into probably one of the greatest epidemics of homelessness ever recorded mm -hmm. in history. Yeah. And yes. this is something that we all need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so, so I want to go to something you just said. You said when you went to prison, that's where you felt most comfortable because you knew them. I think about I work at a university and we have young men, young women who are coming from different environments, right? And so now they're coming to this institution of higher learning, higher educate. And we have an expectation that they should know how to act. And many of them, they don't feel comfortable. They may be first gen where they're the first one in a place like this. And so although we're putting this, oh, you should feel comfortable here because this is an opportunity for you to change your life because you're going to get this education. And then we don't build an infrastructure. We don't have people who are able to get down to, well, why aren't you willing to take that backpack off and begin to unpack it? Because I don't feel comfortable around you. So when you talk about being comfortable in because you knew them, so how important was it for you to be there in order for your growth when you left there? It was, it was probably the most impactful time of my life. I mean, I'm the person that I am now because of that feeling of security. Mm. You know, and to just offer a little bit of how powerful that feeling of security can be when you as an educator speak to that mm. and you say, you know, it, you're safe here. Mm. You know, this is a place where you're safe. You know, I'm going to do what I can to create a safe space for you. And I, you know, give yourself, you know, an opportunity to give yourself safety. Mm. You know, I had to make a decision to feel safe. Mm. And when I gave myself that decision to feel safe, coming out of the institution, I went directly into ministry. I started serving nonstop, worked in the inner city in a very drug-infested neighborhood where I had been out hustling, selling drugs, selling stolen merchandise, all of those things, went right back there to go knock on doors and invite children onto my church bus so that I could speak to those kids. That Why was, was it important for you to do that? It was extremely important for me to do that because I, first of all, needed community. Mm -hmm. I needed a space where I could start to give myself the, the extension of the permission to feel safe. And just the idea of that extension inside of my mind that, hey, we have a common purpose. You know, it's, it's like any kind of person can tell you what the criminal lifestyle takes from you, right? I could tell you, you know, what selling drugs took from me, what hustling took from me, what doing drugs took from me. You know, I can live, give you a list that's a mile long. But to say what it gave me is a really wow. conscious decision. Wow. You know, when I say what it gave me in a judgment-free zone, in a community that I felt love from, in a place where I could finally, you know, come to that realization that, hey, you know what, these people aren't going to tell me, don't you have any common sense? You know, when you talk about that conversation where educators are like, we expect you to be in this place, that for me is that the little boy inside of me is, is listening to the people that are saying, don't you have any common sense, mm. right? Because the idea is, is really there is no common sense. Mm. That's a false concept in itself, mm. unless mm. you are taught the basics of life, which many of us that grow up in this kind of environment, we're not taught the basic basics. Mm. You know, some of us have taught ourselves the basic basics because we start to say, hey, this isn't working for me. Yet that takes another level of kind of conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need to be in that space where you can, you know, the creator gives us seven directions, above, below, inside, east, south, west, and north. And as we journey through life, each one of these perspectives is an opportunity for us to see another side of ourselves. Wow. You know, 
So you, so you said an opportunity. And so when do you become aware that it's an opportunity and not an obstacle? You know, I feel like it's through the reoccurring brokenness, mm. you know, seeing myself continually in a pattern. When I went to state prison, because I got a state number and a federal number, mm-hmm. meaning I was in state and federal prison. I went to the same prison yard that I visited my dead father at as a little boy. And when I was on that yard, I came to a recognition of the pattern of the cycles of addiction. I was on a state yard and in the state system, I had all my homeboys from the street. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was given an opportunity to sleep in a honor part of the dorm Mm -hmm. where, you know, you had to have a certain level of street credibility to even be in that part of the dorm. But because somebody vouched for me, because they knew this person that knew this person that knew me. Mm-hmm. I was able to be in that part of the the prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, in that, it was like a, the container of the culture was fortified. You know, it was very easy for me to get right back in the patterning. But mm-hmm. God had another plan, and that was for me to go to the federal system. Once I went to the federal system, now I'm not known by anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm a small, relatively small-time drug dealer, in the midst of big time drug dealers, mm-hmm. big time, you know, people that are doing, you know, million dollar deals and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the way that it happened was another, you know, hand of providence kind of thing. I was involved in the underground party scene and uh, they did a Dateline episode on the underground rave scene in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because of that Dateline episode, it made national exposure, which brought in the federal police. Yes. And that's how I got swept up in it, was all because mm-hmm. of that, you know, kind of exposure that happened. So I was fortunate because I got access to a 500-hour drug rehabilitation program. Wait, and wait, 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 I, wait, I, wait, wait. Let me just say this. Yeah. You just said you were fortunate even though you were in prison. You were fortunate? How so? Man, because I'm going to break this down for the audience because people need to educate themselves on the way the system works, okay? If you are in the state system, you know, I'm gonna, let me let me compare this to Obamacare, okay? Or, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act, okay? Uh-huh. The Affordable Care Act shares that if you are in the cycle of going back to the hospital over and over again, the hospital is fined, okay, for that person coming back to the hospital over and over again. We're looking at the price tag that's associated with hospitalization and we're saying recidivism in the hospitalization is a problem. Okay, mm-hmm. hospitals, step up, do more community outreach, do mm-hmm. things that are going to help this person stay healthy. It's the same funding in the in the prison system on the state level. The states are given money for people to come back to the prison. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a mm-hmm. broken economic system. The financial broken. engine of that mechanism in a macro sense is broken, mm-hmm. right? Recidivism, if you come back to the prison, the prison should be fined, yes. right? That's you have failed that person. That person, you were supposed to rehabilitate. Not when it's a private, right? I was in a private prison. I was <laughs> it, at Corporate Corrections of America, it, it, which is one of the largest uh, corporatized prisons. Yeah. You know, and so let's just get it back. real honest. What's that? Yes. So I want you to come back, right? I make money. You know, and, and what this country <laughs> has the audacity of saying is, is that slavery has been made illegal. You know, that we don't have Mm. slavery in this country anymore. People, read the Mm. exemption clause. Educate yourself, okay? Mm. Educate yourself. You know, when people talk about the that, I don't understand people that don't, that relate to racism as a thing of the past. I really Mm. don't understand it. Because myself, I grew up, you know, being white in a brown neighborhood and brown in a white neighborhood. Mm. You know, that's the reality of my lifestyle. And race has been a part of my upbringing my entire life. I have... Mm been conscious of race everywhere I go. Mm. You know, even being on here, there's a conscious, I have a conscious understanding, you know, who, where, you know, where I'm at, you know, who the people are I'm talking to. Yeah. That for me is is a knowing of self, <laughs> self-awareness. And yes. I run into people that say, you know, hey, these things don't exist anymore. And I'm like, listen, yeah. right? I was in a for-profit prison. Yes. All right. Mm-hmm. You know, the game has changed, but it's still the same. Mm-hmm. All right. It's 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 changed, but it's still there. I mean, yeah. So when my when I came to the federal institution, 
they had been sending me to these little petty 30-day, 15-day drug, re- you know, alcohol diversion classes. I mean, I started getting busted when I was a teenager, right? And I'm mm-hmm. getting, you know, I, I'm an alcoholic by the time I'm 14 years old, basically. Mm. Uh, and, you know, alcohol diversion classes, all of this, you know, petty kind of rehabilitation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Never had a person say, okay, this kid is in generational right? Wow. Addiction, generational wow. incarceration. Generational. Wow. Yeah. And never had that from the system ever happen, ever. So when I got to the feds and they blessed me with this opportunity to be educated in how to change my cognitive behavior, I didn't even know what cognitive was, you know? I didn't know what <laughs> dissonance was. I didn't have any of this language. Yes. When they said that to me, cognitive dissonance, I was like, oh my God. That is what I experienced right there. I had tried to go to college and then reverted back to using. I had tried to have nice relationships with women and reverted back to using. It was like this whole pattern and I'd never Mm. been able to language it. Just that one languaging brought my mind to an awareness of myself that I was Mm. able to jump into the next part of my life. 500 Mm. hours of drug rehabilitation, a nine month program that literally would have costed me, you know, who knows how much, you know, inpatient, Living at a facility, I was, you know, like I said, I was in the library watching, you know, back in the day, VHS tapes, you know, (laughs) of of education, listening to stuff, Mm -hmm. just doing whatever I could because I knew, you know, that if I didn't get help, I was doomed to going back to, you know, drugs and I didn't want that. You know, I had a daughter in my life that I had never really seen Wow, and uh, just really living in a very unfortunate experience with basically the government. I mean, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was an eye-opening experience for me to be in that federal institution to finally feel like, and I, I knew there were guys in there that weren't taking advantage of it. They were just doing it because you get time off as well. If yeah. you take this drug rehabilitation program, at least that's the way it used to be. I mean, this is 20 years ago, so could be different yeah. now. So but let, there let were ask, those that were taking advantage of it. For me, I was like, I'm going to educate myself as much as I possibly can. Why, why? 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 Because like you said, it was some gentlemen in there who weren't ready to take advantage of it, who didn't choose to take advantage of it. What made you finally get to that point where you understood the importance of being aware to take advantage of it this time? Because like you said, it's been other times. What was it that finally clicked? You know, I guess, like I said, it was the comfort of giving myself the permission slip to actually read, to actually sit and meditate and to learn to pray and to find, you know, that five seconds of closing my eyes while the fellows were holding hands and praying, you know, and then 10 seconds and then 15 seconds and, you know, 30 seconds a minute later, I'm still holding hands and having my eyes closed and praying and I'm starting to feel more comfort in myself. I'm starting to feel you know, hey, I can start to let go of that feeling of being aware of everything around me, of having to be in control. I'm starting to see the the fruits of a conscious connection to self-identity. And even in that very incubator right there of prison life, I'm starting to know that transformation is possible. Mm-hmm. And fear is a great motivator. Okay. You know, being afraid of going back and being in that lowest moment where all my friends were gone, you know, all the people that were praising me. And I used to get the DJs when I would go into these undergrounds, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people. And I walk in with my entourage and the DJs are giving me a shout out. You know, the MC is giving me a shout out. All of that's gone now. You know, none of that's there. I don't have anybody writing me, maybe one or two people. Usually their moms are writing me when I'm in there. Everybody Mm -hmm. forgot about me. And Mm -hmm. that fear of being my parents, of dying of an overdose or dying of hep C. And, you know, fear led me also to get checked for hep C while I was in there, which I had resolved because I was using heroin with my dad to believe I had hep C. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to get checked for it. And if I have it, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to, I don't know what to do with that. But I got checked and I was negative. And it was like, oh, thank you, God, for this. This is a blessing. This is another opportunity you're showing me here that I can get my life right. Um, and yeah, man, it was just, 
It was motivating to think about the generational stuff uh, mm. in my life and to hopefully have hope to bring back the relationships that, that I wanted. I wanted to have my daughter in my life. I wanted to have a relationship with God. I wanted to have an ability to, you know, make money and yeah. uh, live a decent life. I didn't really know what that looked like. I didn't really, you know, know what it was, but I thought there was an opportunity. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. So, so, so one of the things that I heard you say was the generational curses. I've, I've said many times um, to different people that I've talking to, that I've spoken with, and we have a history in my family of of drugs. So I don't drink. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't do any type of drugs. Um, and and that's just me. I'm not judging others for what they choose to do because it's all a choice, right? I just choose not to. My wife even gets upset sometimes because I won't even um, go to the store and buy her wine because I don't even want the perception. Reason why I say that is because of, like I said, the history in my family. And so I've said I don't want my kids to have to repeat that thing that I was unwilling to defeat. So I was determined to defeat it. And the other thing about it was my kids are 17 and 15. My son is going to go to a party. My daughter's going to go to a party. They're going to have that that pool, right, of people saying, what you mean you're not? My son's an athlete. My daughter's an athlete. What you mean you're not drinking? Why don't you want to drink? Uh, everybody's drinking. And I want them to have that in their head. Well, everybody doesn't drink. I've never seen my father drink. And so that right there allows them to make a choice, not based on what people are telling them that they have to do, people telling them what's happened in their household because they've seen something different in their household where, yes, mom drinks responsibly her wine, but dad has never had a drink. And so when you talk about the generational curses, is that what you're standing on? Is that part of the foundation that you're teaching, that you've taught your daughter? I don't know if you have other kids now, but is that what you were saying? You know what? I have to do something different. I can't stay into this this matrix that, that a lot of people are in that I've been in. So talk to me a little bit about that. Well, there's so many ways to look at that, right? Uh, and so many ways that we can get caught up in it. And I'm going to give you two different points of view that I've lived okay. through. Mm -hmm. So when I was a little boy, I was about fifth grade. Uh, this was during the, the Reagan era, Just Say No and yeah. the D.A.R.E. program. Yeah. So if you're old enough to remember D.A.R.E., D.A.R.E. was Drug Abuse, Resistance, and Education. Now, look at this from you know our standpoint today. This is armed police officers, okay? Armed police officers. We know what the police are doing to our neighborhoods right now. It's evident to everybody. You know, back when I was a kid, you didn't see it on the news as much. You didn't see it on video cameras. You didn't see it on YouTube or on Facebook, right? But it was still going on. People were afraid of the police. Mm -hmm. The organization of the government thought that sending armed police officers into elementary schools was going to deter children from using drugs, mm -hmm. okay? What it did was it scared the crap out of everybody, mm -hmm. including me. And my mom told me, they're going to interrogate you, son. They're going to ask you if we're smoking marijuana. And if you say that you're, we're smoking marijuana, they're going to take you from me. They're going to mm -hmm. break up our family. They're going to destroy everything. This is what my mom who's, is telling me. And I know I'm not the only kid that was taught this because it was on the television that kids were getting interrogated. Mm -hmm. They were getting programmed to turn in their parents, mm -hmm. their brothers and sisters through this D.A.R.E. program. So the D.A.R.E. program comes in. They look at this group of kids and they start talking about, you know, I can say now eugenics, okay? Mm -hmm. They're talking about eugenics. They look at they look at us and they say, if you have one drug addict parent, you're 50% more likely to become a drug addict. Mm -hmm. Now, I wasn't a mathematician or anything like that, but yeah. I knew what 50 and 50 was. Yeah. That yeah. meant Ow. that I was a drug addict, <laughs> yes. uh -huh. okay? And that was the first time that I felt that essence of identity. Mm -hmm. And it literally was like a... Like I like to say it was like a, a spiritual architecture, a metaphysical architecture that came into my mind. And I was like, mm. oh, that's what I am. So you mean to tell me that I'm genetically flawed? That mm. there's a genetic, there, there's an abnorm, abnormality in me? Mm. Like, I okay. So it took me years to manifest that. But that was the moment that that seed was planted in my life. Mm. Now, I could say that that was... 
the the words that were spoken to me of the generational curse were the process of me coming into the embodiment of it. Mm -hmm. And then as a person, as a man later on being, looking at my environment, looking at my behaviors, looking at the world that I was in, I came to a place of realizing that I have choices in this. Okay. Mm -hmm. And those choices are, you can either go back to being homeless, being hooked on drugs, not having any friends that really care about you, or you can start showing up and helping people. And in that process, you're going to help yourself. You're going to find your medicine. You're going to use this story that has been the destruction of so many people. You know, there I'm hearing more and more stories of people that have survived it, you know, that are in their 40s like me, you know, that are still putting back, you know, together the trauma, putting their life back together. And all of us out there, you know, we're like rainbow unicorns, you know? Yes, <laughs> we're yes. like, we're literally, it's an anomaly to see yes. a person that has two drug addict parents that has been through the sexual abuse. I mean, I was left at drug houses and sex sexually abused as a little mm -hmm. boy, you mm -hmm. know, to be here as an author, to be here as a speaker, to be sharing what I have in my life, it really is a testament of the power of these ancient technologies. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been a drummer for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. And I've used, I was, you know, I'm a traditional West African player. I also know Latin drumming, Middle Eastern drumming, and I do some traditional Native American drumming now. But that really wasn't the vehicle of my Native American ancestry to bring the drum into my life until years later. It was mm -hmm. actually playing the djembe at drum circles, just people gathering, drumming together. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is this? And as I was sharing before, talking about replacing what the drugs and alcohol gave me, the music gave me an environment where I can have a vehicle to connect to people. Mm. You know, we can have something that isn't related to drinking. We can have something that isn't related to smoking weed and getting high. Mm. We can get together and just drum, just mm. sing songs and just dance and just have this in our lives. And now you look at what happens to communities when they don't have that cultural connection, mm. when you don't have a connection to the drum, when you don't have a connection to the dance, when you don't have song in your life. You know, this is the destructive forces that have been systematically taken from Native American people, indigenous people around the world. Mm -hmm. Because they're the tools that bond us. We need to have that bonding in our lives. Yes. All people need to have that All, bonding. Yep, yep. And it's so important for us to realize that you know, now I have this opportunity to go into schools and to play the drum with kids. And I have, you know, we have about a hundred instruments here in my house. It's like yeah. literally a drum museum uh -huh. because these are tools that I use to give people yeah. a connection to one another. Yeah. And it's just so empowering. There was a time in my life, I'm trained in an evidence-based healing modality called health rhythms, which was developed by a psychoneuroimmunologist. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of this protocol that says, can you play for me the way you felt when? Now, check this out, Dr. Damien, right? When I'm learning this, I can't even say the words. Mm. I can't say the words. Can you play for me the way you felt when? I started to stutter every time that I would say it. I'm like, mm. what's wrong with me? Why can't I say this? And what I realized is I wasn't giving that little boy a chance mm. to feel what it was like to be told by armed police officers that you're genetically flawed, mm. what, what it was like to go through the suffering of sexual abuse, what it was like to be bullied in school because I had PTSD so badly that I was going to the bathroom on myself. You feel mm -hmm. me? Like that was the process that I was living through, you know? And as I unpacked that, here was this teacher, you know, yeah. which was a drum yeah. and I could hit it. And if I hit it, it did something. There was mm -hmm. a psychological thing that went on in my mind, right? I'm in control of this. Mm. You know, I'm in control of something in my life. I can't control my mom's substance abuse, my dad's substance abuse. I can't control my own substance abuse. But if I hit this drum, there's something that I can control. Mm. And that was just so empowering. Yeah. It was just yeah. so unbelievable, like what it did for me and what it's doing for me now. Now, fast forward to where I'm at today, right? And I'm working with kids. Can you play for me the way you felt when you were bullied at school? Mm. And to see children and our, our youth right now, you know, people say, oh, well, they're on screens and this and that. But these youth in an emotional level of mm -hmm. interconnectedness and empathy are at a state that all of us should be envious of. I mean, unless you are just completely dull of your own empathic reasoning, yes, your own right. empathic abilities, when you get around these children, they don't even have to say anything to each other now. They just mm -hmm. look at each other and they know mm -hmm. what's going on. You give them a drum 
and I'm at this school, low-income school. Okay, there's this young. Uh, she's I, she's a native native and and African American young girl, small little girl, you know. And I say to the group, "Can somebody play for me the way they felt when they were bullied?" Everything goes like this, right? Nothing. Mm. You can't. You could hear, yeah. you know, a squeak. I mean, it's like silence. Mm. And her little hand just taps the drum like that. And I looked over at her and I I gave her the Disneyland. Would you like to play? Yeah. Like that. Mm. She just says, no, 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 no way. Mm. No way am I playing. The other kids start, start supporting her. Her nickname was Little Bit. They mm. start saying, Little Bit, you can play. You can play. Come on. Come on. You can play. She's like, you know, she's, oh, I get the goosebumps talking about this because this was so powerful, okay? So she puts her hands on the drum. She starts just playing. Next thing you know, these here, just tears start coming down, you know. Wow. Big crocodile tears. And now, wow. now I'm back, that little boy, right, that's being bullied. Everybody mm-hmm. there is that child that's being bullied, you know, by mm-hmm. some bigger kid or whatever. And then we get done. She gets done expressing herself. And it was just a beautiful symphony of sound. I say to the group, can somebody share what they felt? This is that connection point. They get Mm -hmm. to share with their words, okay? So they're sharing, and then this young man over here across from her is really sharing, and she starts to nod nod her head. He's saying all these profound words, Wow! and there's this connection. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I'm putting the drums up and everything. This is amazing. You know, we did a really good job. The principal comes up to me and grabs me and says, Andrew, you don't know what just happened. I was like, yeah, that was amazing, right? She goes, no, you don't understand. I was like, really? She says, yeah, they were the two that were in my office that I was telling you we were having a problem with bullying. It was those two. Oh, wow. 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 It's it's that connectiveness. We're all connected in some way, some form. I love it. I um, used to work at Washington State University, and I was um, in inclusion and equity. And Paul was our Native American um, director of the of the Native American Center. And I remember, like it was yesterday, you know, we were joking around as we do, and he said, you know, I know, you know, black people always saying, you know, you're on, you're on black people time, meaning you're always late. He said, Damon, do you know Native Americans don't even look at the clock? <laughs> so I said, man, so so everybody got something in there? Native Americans don't even look at the clock with black people. So, so we all have that sense of connectiveness. And I like what you said. And I have this system that I created where I say we the plug. And we have the choice to plug into and plug away from what we choose to. But once again, it's a choice. And unfortunately, because of belief systems that's been passed down to us, we believe that we have to plug into this one identity, not realizing that we have the ability to unplug from any dysfunction, from any sense of helplessness, hopelessness, of insecurities, all of those different things. We have the power to unplug because once we plug our power into the identity that hasn't been given to us, but the identity of our true self, of what we bring to this planet, that's when we go to the next level. And so that understanding, that awareness that we're all one, we're all one. And when we start to love even the tree, when we start to love even the animal, everything has a place on this planet. But that's bringing it down to the very crux of our existence. Would you agree? Oh, man. You know, when you talk about connection, this is the natural journey. Yes. You know, as the spark connects to the branch to create the fire. Yes. Right? As the drop of rain connects to the earth to create the ocean, as the ocean connects to the wind to create the cloud, Mm -hmm. this is restoring the integration of our empathy. When you talk about love in the tree, right, it's that vehicle that says, I am going to feel, right? Mm -hmm. This is the value system of life itself is integration. This is what we're all searching for right here, right now. You know, when we say all my relations... Right. This is a saying that goes on in in the sweat lodge, you know, in the ceremonies. And when we say this, it's like this idea of, yes, I am related to you Mm. as my earthling Mm -hmm. family, but I'm also related to the deer. I'm also related to the tree. You know, the only thing that's different is the organization. You know, we are all air, water, fire, earth. 
Yes. You know, we are all spirit. You know, it's mm -hmm. the organization that makes a difference. That tree is the same elements as you. That mm. mountain is the same elements as you. Mm. You know, what comes into this contemporary culture that blinds us from that is, is the idea of, oh, that mountain would be much more profitable if it had a resort on it, right? Yeah, and yes. we start looking at people like this. Yes. You know, that the innate wow. value of people is absent without performance. Mm. And this is where the behavior model of identity is broken. See, my behaviors as an individual, are those are absent from my true identity. Mm. These are parts of me. These are the way I behave. I behave as an author. I behave as a musician. I behave as a public speaker. You see? Mm. But who am I? You know, mm. what's the resting point of me? Yes. You know, you're an academic. You're a doctor. You behave as an academic. Mm. You know, but is that you? Mm -hmm. You know? Underneath all of that ego, right, is this mm -hmm. little boy. Yep. Right, this little boy that says, "Hey, guess what? I want to play with my other, with my homies. <laughs> like, yes, what, yes, what can we do? Yes. <laughs> you know, how can we play? Let's go out and play beat baseball. You feel yes. me? Let's yes, go. Yes. Let's go. And, and you and you've mentioned that before. <laughs> you mentioned that before, and 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 I've told clients, students, different people I've worked with, until we heal that young boy, until we allow that young girl inside of us that lives inside of us to be able to say, wow. This affected me and I've never healed until we're able to have that conversation to say, I got you, I got you, and we're going to get through this together. But a lot of times we leave that little boy, we leave that little girl to be this man, to be this woman. And then we wonder why we go back to a situation or we blow up from a situation because that young child hasn't been healed. I love how you said that. I love you know you it goes it. back to this this whole thing of what's wrong with you you know mm. mommy I, I hurt my finger daddy I hurt my finger what's wrong with you son mm. you know mm. what's wrong with you daughter mm. and I loved how you talked about you know the feminine side of us because in our in our tradition in the Apache tradition in the you know the ne inde tradition uh, we have a feminine and a masculine side and that mm. creates an opportunity also to recognize that the inner child is the part that's in the middle Right, it's a trinity of femininity, masculinity, and the child. And when those work in perfect synergy and perfect concert with one another, you have a foundation for self. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, the ability to look at the cycles of life as a feminine. Mm -hmm. You know, what you know, why is the mountain in the fall time going to be dressed in golden leaves, red leaves. And then yes. in the winter time, she's going to be bare. And then in the spring, she's going to have little buds on her. And then in the summer, she's going to have all green leaves. What does that mean, right? Mm. What does it mean to look up at the sky and see the sun go from one part of the sky to the other and then arise again, you know, as a cycle of life? What is it when my woman, when my daughter bleeds every month? What does this mean for me mm. as a person who's who's in, in a relationship with that aspect? of life. But as a man, I need to be conscious to have that. I need to be mindful of that awareness. I need to invite that understanding into my life. This is the feminine, you know, the yes. cycles of life. And then the masculine gives us that logical, you know, that, that place of saying, okay, here's the beginning. Here's the end. This is the linear. You know, yeah. we get into yes. this place of the linear in our contemporary culture, right? We grow up sitting in a line. Go to church, we sit in a line. Go to school, we sit in a line. Classroom. Everywhere we go, it's always a line. And that has a beginning and an end. We're taught as kids growing up, it's be a leader, son. Be a leader. Well, guess what? Then that means Billy has to be a follower. Little Johnny's got to be a follower. Somebody in this equation has to be a follower because leaders are a guy taking a walk in the woods without followers, right? So when we come back to the wholeness, we come back to the place of equality. We sit in circle together. Mm -hmm. You know, Robert White Mountain, this Lakota man, he said, Andrew, the problem with humanity is that we have forgot how to mend the hoop. We forgot how to sit here, you know? Look at us right here, even right now. You know, myself, native person, Justin, I'm going to assume European background, you know, here. And also, you know, dear Dr. Damien, you know, here as as a, as a, a, a man of African-American descent, I'm going to say, you know, a black mm -hmm. man today, you know, mm -hmm. like, look at this, how we're sitting in circle together right here, mm -hmm. fellas. You know, here we are mending the hoop of life, you know, mm -hmm. sitting with one another, chopping it up, reasoning with one another. You know, this is beautiful right here. You know, this is how we get back to that place, you know, of understanding ourselves in the totality of the experience. Experience. And guess what? What emerges when the masculine protective side of us is there, the feminine beauty way is there, 
right? Yeah. Emerges sacred child comes forward and sacred child can trust again. Sacred child can have faith again. Sacred child can close their eyes and pray again and mm -hmm. feel comfortable, close their eyes and meditate again. You know, this is life. That connection to the tree, that empathy. See, when you, when you started talking about this, I got excited because you hit a very powerful point. And this is self-empathy. You know, how do you relate to the child inside of you? Have you given yourself permission to have empathy for that little boy that grew up without a father? That was trying to do his best to relate to every coach in his life, trying to get that, that self, that pat on the back. You know, I, I, in the brokenness of my life, I was, you know, the drug dealer was the first person to give me the pat on the back. Yes. You know, I didn't have baseball. I didn't have t-ball. I didn't have yes. little league, you know, but we were both searching for something. Yes. You know, and yes. then it turned into the, the educators for you. And then it turned into the people I was ministering to for me. You see, it's the same little boy. Yes. He's yes, just finding another way in life to get that, yes. uh, that you know, father, father sky, mother earth to connection. You know, yeah. how beautiful that is that we can relate on that way of interconnectative, you know, interconnection. The yes. place in which we have self-empathy and we say, emerge, little boy. Come on out, daughter. Come on out, son. Come on out, grandson. You know, come on out, granddaughter. It's okay for yeah. you to play today. You know, yeah. it's okay for you to have fun. You can sing yes. a song. You can dance yes. today. You yes. know, yes. this is the value of our life. And this is where I hope we're going as a community. What a beautiful day it would be if, if people didn't call the police on one another. If you knew that house down the street with that little boy that was going to the bathroom on himself. If you were able to go knock on the door and say, hey, you know what? I think you might have some problems with substance abuse. Is there anything we can do for you as a community? You know, mm -hmm. is there anything that we can, we can help you with? You as know, we village. all know that, mm -hmm. that there's things going on in your home here. We see the people showing up yeah. and we care about you, neighbor. You know, yeah. we love you, neighbor. Is there something we can do to help out? You know, yeah. Yeah. what a value, yeah. what a, yes. what a way that we could transform instead of saying, oh, well, those people in the government, they don't care about us. Those people in the church, they don't care about us. Those people. No, it's yeah. us. Yeah. We are the ones we've been waiting for yeah. right here, right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. how it works. And your medicine is your power relative. Yes. All you yes. listening to me, your medicine, the deepest, darkest secret, the intimacy, the vulnerability that you bring forward in your life, this is your greatest gift. You know, we have young women that went out to a party, a keg party, and thought, oh, getting drunk, you know, getting having some beers with somebody was a way to relate. They wake up and their clothes are off. Mm. Who do they tell? They go home and tell mom, and she says, that's what you get when you get drunk. No, that's not what you get when you get drunk. You know, we need to unpack these things. We need to talk to our young men about that. You know, intimacy is not getting, you know, drunk with one another, high with one another, and then ending up in the bed. You know, talk mm. about your vulnerability. Talk about, mm. you know, where you're at in your insecurities. If you think that alcohol and drugs are going to help you through your insecurities, it's a broken statement. Mm. You know, this is just, you need to be conscious of your insecurities mm. in order to have that awareness mm. by, you know, pushing them down. Yeah. You're breaking yourself and breaking others around you. Yes, yes. So that you know, and and I know we're getting close to this hour, and so I want to be um, cognizant of the time. It, it really did. It really did, and it always does when it's great conversation taking place. Um, but and I have some questions I want to ask you before we close. But I once heard, I think it was Wayne Dyer, and he was talking about. You may have heard this. Said even after all of these years, you never hear the sun say. You owe me. And so when do we get to the point where it's not that I owe you, I'm obligated by the experiences that I've been through, that I learned from, that I'm able to help you understand that, hey, there is a different way. And that's what I got from this conversation is the, the, the learning process that you went through, the healing process that you went through, that you're able to articulate to everyone that you come in contact with to say there is a different way. And I appreciate you for that. And I thank you for that. And I, um, I, know my, I know the listening audiences, I know that they gained something from this because you poured into us. And I thank you for that. Oh, thank you. And if um, anyone wants to get connected with me, I give my book away for free. You mm. can go to my website, thesacred7.com. You can get a free copy of my book, which will help you understand the tool of self-identity and how to introduce yourself 
just like Dr. Damien was talking about, when he speaks, he speaks from the place of being a child, being a grandchild. When I speak, I speak from that place as well. There's power in that. There's something that happens when you introduce yourself as a child and a grandchild. You feel something every time. I've done it thousands of times and mm -hmm. I still feel something every time. Wow. So please get a free PDF copy of the book. If you want to join us in purchasing a signed copy of the book, I hope this is okay. No, you're is this fine. Okay to we're going to okay, ask you. Listen, we were going to ask take you out when they can anyway. you. No, so, you're fine. You know, okay. So I do a program where I send a copy into a prison. We're partnered with the Arizona Department of Corrections. So every signed copy of my book that I sell, which I'll you know channel a personal message for, I feel like the Holy Spirit speaking through me. You know, I'll, I'll try to get what I can in that place to give you some personal guidance. I write a message on the book, and then I get to send a book into a prison. How wow. exciting is that? You know, wow. there's just not enough stories of people out there that have lived through this stuff that have, you know, I mean, even my homeboys in my neighborhood, when they hear me, they're like, just respect, you know, yeah. and they're still caught up in it. A yeah. lot of them, you know, I, I realize why they call them homeboys is because they never leave home. Yes, I got, yes, yes. And I, and I don't, you know? I don't, and, 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 and it's funny you say that. I don't even judge my um, friends. I, I, I pray for them because I just want their consciousness to become aware that there is, as we said, a different way. And and, and, and and time isn't waiting for anyone, just like this podcast. And time passed. And what people take from this and what they've done with the time that's passing, hopefully is going to lead them in a direction where they come more in tune with who they are and that identity piece, right, of what they can bring and what they're here to offer this planet, this universe for this finite amount of time that they will be here. So relevant. So like important to realize that little slash, right, between 1975 and 20,000, whatever. Yes. You know, that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's all we got is that little tiny dash. Yeah. And try to do our best here. Try to show up for one another, love each other, be grateful for our lives, be gentle with yourself, you know, mm. think forgive good thoughts yourself about yourself. And forgive yourself. Yes. My, my uncle Ted Begay, he's, uh, I remember the first time Dr. Damien, I introduced myself in the traditional language, you know. And if there's any natives out there, they'll, they'll, get, they'll get this because this is a little what we call Indian humor here. You know, I'm in the sweat lodge and I had come back to the sweat lodge at Patina Wellness Center, which was a Native American drug rehabilitation facility and that I'm now a contractor with, Native American Connections. And I work over there. Well, in a time when I was going through a divorce, I was on the razor's edge. I had lost my church community and I was about to go back out and use. And that's when mm -hmm. my Native American spirituality came in. This was about... 10, 12 years ago now. Uh, I, knew up I knew growing up I was Apache, but it was basically from behind a bottle of whiskey. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of how I grew. I didn't know what it meant. Mm -hmm. So when I started teaching myself the language by listening to the elders and then also researching what I could on websites and books and everything, right? I came to that point where I was like, I want to introduce myself using the tra traditional language. I'm going to go to the sweat lodge tonight and I'm going to introduce myself using this language. And wouldn't you know, uh, Dr. Damien and I, I chickened out, you know, uh, I was afraid, you know, I didn't do it that night. But the next night when I came back, I did. And I was waiting for everybody to laugh at me, you know, I was waiting for them to kind of like, oh, you didn't know how to do it right or correct me or something like that. Because I've, I've got in front of, you know, quote unquote, you know, European white churches, whatever you want to say. And I've been the native that comes because I play Native American flute and I'll play my flute and I'll introduce my ancestors. When I get to my Irish German side, people will laugh at me, you know, and I'm like, what, what are you laughing at, man? This is a part of me, you know, like, what is this? But I never experienced that in the sweat lodge. Mm. For some reason, that isn't a part of, of that consciousness. So I introduce myself. Right in the traditional language, I stumble through it as hard as I can, and this is a process of decolonizing my mind. You know, this mm. is something that is challenging for us as Indigenous people. I mean, you go out to the national forest and you look, and it says, you know, the Athabascan language was spoke here. Native Americans were here. Right, I'm standing in front of this effing sign saying, "I am here." You feel me? Mm. I am here, and I'm going to speak to you, and I'm going to say my my language to you, sign. You know, because this is the subtleties of writing off an, a whole people, 
a whole group mm-hmm. of people, right? Mm-hmm. During the election, we were something else. That's how they labeled us. Mm-hmm. You know, white America, black America, Latin X, something else. This is what they call mm-hmm. this, right? So I go to the sweat lodge. I introduce myself and, oh, man, all the elders are in there and they're saying, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, yeah. You know, they're talking real Indian to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it uh, comes around to my Uncle Ted, and I just love this man so much, you know. Half the good stuff that I say is from him. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, nephew, nephew, now we're going to have to give you an Indian name. And I said, oh, uncle, it has to be an easy one. Please make it be an easy name. And he goes, uh-huh. aho, easy way. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There so you go. I'm, known, I'm known amongst the people as easy way. <laughs> easy way. All right. All right. So I have... Um, I have, I love it. I love it. I love it. I have five questions I want to ask you, but before I get to the five questions I want to ask you, um, we can stay here all night me. and chop it up, Davian. Well, well, I love well, this right here. Well, well, I know, I know Justin's on a board and this is, um, okay, he has okay, something okay. he has to get to, but you said something and I just want to close with this for my audience language, the language that we tell ourselves about ourselves helps define ourselves, And we have to be careful of the language that we're saying to ourselves, about ourselves, as we define ourselves. And so, once again, thank you for um, joining us on this Purpose Lab podcast, where we're on a mission to interview the world's most successful failures. So I thank you for using failure for what it is, an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to grow, and an opportunity to use what you've learned to help others. So thank you for being a purpose chaser. We appreciate you. Now, here we go. I have five words that I'm going to say to you. So five words. You can only respond using one word. So when I ask you, when I say the word, you can only respond using one word. Ready? Here we go. Native. Life. Indigenous. Understanding. Son. Father. Moon. Cycle. God. Relationship. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining us on this podcast. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Blessings. Blessings to everyone. Thank you. Thank you. We send our best stuff to our insiders. So make sure you're on the list at aimhighu.com slash insiders. <laughs>